This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 13 of Inside COVID-19. Coming up, we hear from Bill Gates, who five years ago warned policymakers to prepare for a pandemic like the one we're now experiencing. There's a harrowing but riveting interview with our correspondents whose healthy 50-year-old cousin succumbed to COVID-19 on Friday night, and a rare address from Queen Elizabeth, whose son and Prime Minister are both infected. Inside COVID-19, from Business. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, deaths from COVID-19 continue to rise, passing 70,000 worldwide on Monday evening, according to Johns Hopkins University, the world's go-to source for the latest data. But there are now clear indications that the rate of growth in the worst-affected European countries is slowing, with daily Italian and Spanish mortalities continuing to decline. The curve continues to rise in the U.S., however, with American deaths approaching 10,000 from almost 350,000 confirmed infections. South Africa's numbers are still growing in low single-digit percentages. Sunday's increase of 70 new cases represents a modest 4.5% daily rise. Two more people have succumbed in South Africa, however, raising the country's total COVID-19 deaths to 11. The last five of these were all people in their 80s, three females and two males. The reporting, however, does appear to be somewhat delayed. In this episode, we'll hear from Gary and Andy Cronier about the COVID-19 death on Friday night of their cousin, Johan Forster, whose details are still not listed among the 11 mortalities. After weeks of watching the value of their assets being pummeled, stock market investors enjoyed some respite yesterday, as share prices around the world began reflecting a belief that the worst of the COVID-19 impact may be behind us. Here's South Africa's favorite market commentator, David Shapiro. Global markets are up, and Alec, what's driving markets up is that the news and the narrative is starting to turn positive. Or let's put it this way, less negative is a better way of of, of saying it. Um, there's still deep concerns in the market, but... Um, at least, uh, we, you know, we're hearing stories that infection rates are peaking in Europe or certain parts of Europe. They expect infection rates to start peaking even in the U.S., uh, less deaths. Or let, let's put it this way, the, the rate of deaths is not increasing. So that flattening of the curve, I do, and, and it's too early to call an end to it, but the flattening is giving a little bit of encouragement to markets. So already we're starting to look beyond, you know, look beyond the COVID-19 and start positioning ourselves there. I hope it's signs of a bottoming, and I hope that nothing else happens in the near term that's going to set us back again, and that from now on we just get little bits of, of better news, you know, to help us along. So I think that's what's driving markets. Business for South Africa's Public Health Work Group is urgently trying to source personal protective equipment for health workers. It's looking for equipment like surgical masks, latex gloves, plastic aprons, visors and overshoes that may be unused and in storerooms around the country. 
The equipment is critically needed to protect frontline doctors and nurses. Sourcing PPEs has become difficult because of export restrictions from manufacturing countries as nations around the world are scrambling to protect their own. Companies which are able to help have been asked to email details of what they do have to COVID-19 supplies at businessresponsecovid19.co.za. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. In 2015, Microsoft founder turned philanthropist Bill Gates delivered a prescient TED Talk, predicting it was only a matter of time before the world would be hit by a viral outbreak like COVID-19. Gates urged policymakers to prepare, arguing that building a rapid response task force would cost a fraction of the eventual bill, he put it at $4 trillion, that such a pandemic would cost. Unfortunately, nobody listened to Gates five years ago, and now the world is paying a heavy price. Last week, TED Talk's chief, Chris Anderson, invited Gates to give an update on his 2015 talk and offer some thoughts on how to fight the pandemic. Here's an edited version of their fascinating discussion. I mean, last month you said um, that this might be the big one. You, 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 you wrote that this, this could be the sort of once-in-a-century pandemic um, that people had been fearing. <clears throat> Is that how you think of it still? Well, I, it's awful to say this, but we could have a respiratory virus whose case fatality rate was even higher if this was something like smallpox. You know, that kills 30% of people. So this is horrific. Uh, But, you know, in fact, uh, most people, even who get the COVID disease, are able to survive. So in that, it's quite infectious, way more infectious than MERS or SARS were. It's not as fatal as they were. and yet the disruption we're seeing in order to knock it down is, is, you know, really completely unprecedented. So this is a, you know, it's going global. Uh, that was, it's respiratory. Uh, that was the great fear. Um, how many people end up dying? Uh, hopefully, you know, if we do the right things, it won't be a gigantic number. So it's, you know, we, we, should end up not having a 1918 flu situation, uh, we should be able to do a lot better than that. Is, is the key thing here that it's, it's got this sort of um, strange combination of being um, certainly more dangerous than flu, not as dangerous as something like Ebola or, or, or SARS, but more dangerous than, than flu by a factor, but, but, but infectious, and, and also infectious before symptoms have started. Is that part of why... It's, it's been really hard to respond to. Right. So Ebola, you're actually flat on your back before you're very infectious. So you're not uh, at church or in a bus or at a store. Uh, with most respiratory viruses like the flu and COVID, uh, at first you only feel a little bit of a fever and a little bit sick. And so there's the possibility you're going about your normal activities and infecting other people. And so, you know, human-to-human transmissible respiratory viruses that in the early stage aren't um, stopping you from 
doing things, that's kind of a worst case. And that's where, you know, I did a flu simulation in the 2015 talk and showed how quickly it spread. When was it clear to you that, um, that unless we acted, this, this could be a really deadly pandemic? Well, in January, it was discussed that there was human-to-human transmission taking place. And so, you know, the alarm bells uh, were ringing uh, that this fits the very scary pattern that it will be very difficult to contain. And in, in, on January 23rd, China did their equivalent of the shutdown, uh, did it in a fairly extreme form. The very good news is that they were able to reduce the infection rates uh, dramatically because of those actions. But it's, it's January where everybody should have been on notice uh, let's get our act together with testing. Let's get going on uh, therapeutics and vaccines. Uh, we've got to get organized because we have this novel respiratory virus whose infectiousness and fatality put it in that super scary range. But then what I don't understand is, in the case of the U.S., for example, is that if, if even if we're successful in bending the curve and reducing the number of new cases from a period of extreme shutdown, as it were. No immunity has been built up. Let's say that there's still no vaccine. Surely when you lift restrictions and people start going back to work, the whole thing just blows up again. The experience that we're seeing in China and in South Korea is that there are not these people are asymptomatic that are causing lots of infections. And that's a parameter that as you build the model, uh, you have to put in. If there's an imperial model that people talk about a lot, which shows that reopening is very hard to do, uh, but it, the results of that model are not matching what we see in China. And so very likely there aren't as many of these infecting asymptomatics. And that's why you have to be pragmatic there's a lot we don't know. For example, seasonality may help us in the northern hemisphere. The force of infection will, um, respiratory viruses, uh, to some degree, they all are, are, are seasonal. We don't know how seasonal this one is, uh, but, you know, there's a reasonable chance that the force of infection will be going down. And it's your testing that always is telling you, oh my gosh, do I have to shut down more? Or can I start to open up? So particularly right as you open up, that testing and contact tracing is is saying to you. And I'm, you know, you can say I'm on the more optimistic side that it will be possible to do what China's doing where, uh, you know, they are starting to go back to normal. And help me understand what happened there because it seems kind of miraculous to me because they, they, this virus was exploding Yes, in Wuhan, but, but people moved from there to many other parts of China. How is it possible that, that the combination of the shutdown in Wuhan and measures elsewhere seem to have got to the point where there are literally no new cases happening? I mean, to me, that implies that literally the virus is not circulating at all uh, between humans in China. How on, you know, there's a few tourists coming in who they deal with, but I mean, how... 
how on earth like is that is that literally your interpretation of what happened that oh, it's no longer circulating the, in what China? you should do is take a spreadsheet and take a number like four one person affects four people and say the cycle you know is every 10 days go through you know eight of those cycles uh and you're getting a big number you know start with 10,000 uh and then you know that increase if you take the number 0.4 instead that is the average case infects 0.4 people which uh then look at what happens to that number as you go out it it drops to zero and so things that are exponential are very very dramatic when they're right. above one they are growing rapidly when they're below one they're shrinking rapidly and so the isolation in china drove that reproductive number to well below one that quarantine that's you know quarantine comes from 40 days which is what they thought would help for black plague that is our primary technique thank god we have testing if we use it properly we are you know doing therapeutics which will help with the death rate but in terms of the keeping infections below 1% of the population it's it's really all depends just on the two things isolation and testing if the rich countries really do their job well by the summer uh they'll be like china is are some of the other countries that responded early but in the developing countries particularly in the southern hemisphere the seasonality is is large as you say the ability to isolate you know when you go out to get your food every day uh you know you have to earn your wage when you live in a a slum where you're very nearby each other it's very hard to do uh as you move down the income ladder uh then it is for a a country like like the United States and so we should all you know accelerate the vaccine which eventually will come and you know people are being responsible to say that you know that's going to take 18 months uh uh and there's a lot of those being pursued we do need to get really cheap testing out to these countries uh and we need to get therapeutics so you don't need to put 5% of people on respirators because even if they had the equipment they don't have the personnel they just don't have the beds the capacity and so the only good news is that the rich countries have this and so they will be learning about testing therapeutics and funding the vaccines for the entire world to try and minimize uh the the damage in developing countries science is on our side the the fact we can uh be ready for the next epidemic it's very clear how to do that and yes it will take tens of billions but not hundreds or trillions of of dollars it'll be tiny compared to the economic cost i remember when i did that presentation in 2015 i put up a hey you know a big flu epidemic could cost 4 trillion and i thought wow that's a big number do i really think it's that big and i went and looked at them and i thought yeah well that that's big this epidemic will cost that much to the economy so in the short run we are going to have more pain and more difficulty and people are going to have to step up to help each other i'm still very much an optimist you know whether it's climate change countries working together biology taking the diseases malaria tb you know even advances for what are more ritual diseases like cancer 
the amount of innovation, the way we can connect up and work together, yes, I'm super positive about that. You know, I love my work because I see progress on all these diseases all the time. Now we have to, you know, turn and, and focus on this. You know, sadly, it may interrupt and the polio situation might get worse a little bit because of the distraction here. You know, we're using a lot of the great capacity that was built up uh, for those polio activities to try and help the developing countries respond to this very well. And that that is appropriate. But, you know, the message for me, although it's very sober when we're dealing with this epidemic, I'm very positive that this should draw us together. We will get out of this and then we will get ready for the next epidemic. The leaders that matter listen to the scientists, will they? Will we make it through? Do you, do you believe that within a few months' time, we're going to be already looking back and saying, we dodged a pretty bad one there? We, we can't say for sure that even the rich countries will be out of this in six to ten weeks. I think that's likely, but... As we get the testing data, we'll get more of a sense of that and people will continuously be able to see that. But, you know, the rich countries will get out of this. The developing countries will bear a significant price, but even they, we will get a vaccine and, and you know, Gavi will get that out to, to everyone. So, you know, two to three years from now, this thing, even on a global basis, will essentially be over with a gigantic price tag. But now we're going to know, okay, next time we see a pathogen, we can make billions of tests within two or three weeks. We can figure out which antiviral drugs work within two or three weeks and get those scaled up. And we can make a vaccine if we're really ready, probably in six months using these new platforms probably the RNA vaccine. So specifically, there are innovations that uh, are there that will get financed, you know, I hope quite generously uh, coming out of this thing. And so three years from now, we'll look back and say, you know, that was awful. There's a lot of heroes, but we've learned the lesson. And, and the world as a whole, with its great science and desire to help each other, was able to try and minimize what happened there and avoid it happening again. Since early February, we've been regularly checking in on South African school teachers Gary and Andy Cronier, first as they provided on-the-ground reports from China and most recently after arriving home last month. In this, our latest update, they share the heartbreaking news that Gary's cousin, Johan Forster, who fetched them from the airport on their return from China, has succumbed to COVID-19. Johan had turned 50, was in good physical shape, and did not smoke. We've done the full, the full 360 of this COVID virus. Yeah, from being in China and unaffected to it hitting a very personal note back home. That's extraordinary. I, I'm yeah. getting your um, your WhatsApp today about Johan. Is he so? He's your cousin, Gary. Yes. 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 He's my f- uh, first cousin. Yes. And uh, did you know him well? Yes. Very well. He's he's actually he's more like a brother to both of us. Uh, he's he's older than both of us. Um, he's the kind of guy that if you ask him to do something, he'll do it with. 
pleasure. He actually came to fetch us at the airport. airport. Yes. <laughs> so we felt we feel absolutely devastated, awful, you know. because you know everybody will will blame pointing us, fingers pointing at fingers at us. But a lot of medical people, our friends in Beijing and in South Africa, said to us, if we were the carriers and we had it. My parents, that's also elderly and on retirement, would have been sick long ago. And now everybody's question is, where did he get it? And there's just no way we, we can know. There's just no way we can know. Look, he, he did travel around the country quite a bit. Yes. He is the main technician that used to fix and um, sort out all ATMs. You know, if they broke down or there was problems, he was the guy. The company sent him to Dubai to go and do study. You know, he was really an intelligent man, a gentle giant. And then it's just ripped out of the family, and that was bad. ATMs, you, you kind of, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking in my head here, people press buttons on ATMs, don't yes. they? Yes. And they would yes. they could possibly leave. Yo, that's got to be one of the highest risk areas, almost like it handling is. money. It mm. is. Yes. Um, the day he got, the day he fetched us, in fact, he took us from the airport to my in-laws and then he had to leave to go to Polokwane. Yes. So. All in a day's work. Hmm. And at that stage, had we been in a lockdown yet? No. no. We, no. we got back on, we arrived in South Africa on the morning of the 9th and that's when he fetched us from the airport. He, uh, he got there earlier and, uh, when we phoned him to say that we had arrived, he was, ha- he said he was having a breakfast and a coffee at one of the, uh, cafes at the airport. And then he came down to fetch us. When we, when we saw him, because we had just climbed off a plane, uh, full of, uh, people from China, we gave him a mask to put on, um, just in case. Uh, and then, as you know, we did come, we, we came home and we self-quarantined. Yes. So the, the I guess if you, he was off to Polokwane, who knows uh, what, who he may have come in contact with. Is, is there any attempt being made to, to track the people that he engaged with? Well, the, the hospital phoned us um, where he was. They phoned us just to get our address, our phone numbers, everything, and but since then, I heard nothing. I phoned the hospital several times and said, listen, why don't we get tested to see if we're not carriers? Maybe we are positive and not, you know, not um, asymptomatic. asymptomatic. And if we go out into the field, maybe somebody else's life is at risk. They said, no, if you don't show any symptoms, we won't test you. And we did phone the, the national hotline as well. And they asked us our timeline. They asked us, who do we live with? And we've been home now for 20, 25 days. Yeah. Uh, we last saw Johan 20 days ago. He quickly popped in here uh, with Cynthia, his wife, to um, come and just say hi. And we they had a small barbecue, my mother and father-in-law. We were still keeping ourselves to one side. Um, Cynthia is also, uh, she's, she is showing symptoms, but very mild symptoms. Mild. She's positive. But what is a miracle is her mother, uh, well, uh, uh, Johan Forster's mother-in-law and Cynthia's mother, she's 81 and she tested negative. And they live together. And they live in the same house. So that's very thankful. Very, yeah. very thankful for that. 
but yes. 20, 20 days ago when he came to visit you, presumably mm. he was healthy, he was fit. He yes. was fine. Uh, he started showing, he started feeling a little sick. Um, I think it was more than two weeks ago. He went to the doctor. The doctor did test him, but they were very delayed in getting his test results. In fact, from what I heard from his wife is they actually lost his test results. Um, and then they found them and said, no, it was negative. But he stayed at home and just got progressively sicker with a very high temperature. His brother uh, took him to the hospital, of which he was uh, in ICU for a good couple of days. And he started showing a, a lot of improvements. He started sitting up. He started eating. Uh, and he was looking to come home. They thought he would come home on the 10th. And uh, last night at 6 o'clock, about 6 o'clock, um, they phoned Cynthia to say he's really, really bad. They're going to have to put him on a ventilator. And then 20 past, 20 to 10 last night, um, he, he, passed away. he passed away. Uh, you guys have been have been very close to this, uh, this COVID-19 from your time in China, the people you know there. Uh, to to the, is it typical what happened with Johan? Uh, yes. In other words, the passing. Yes. What will happen? It usually the the symptoms will show after about four days. Then you will start getting coughs, or temperature, or body aches and pains with the the cough, the irritating cough, and then they will do tests, and that's where the whole process starts. But by this time. The virus is so far spread in your body. Yes. You've already infected as much people because come in contact with. The, the demon in the virus that they described it to us is before you show symptoms, it is highly contagious. And then only you show symptoms. Yes. So back to the reason to be tested. So we phoned, we phoned the, the national call center and they said, no, my mom-in-law and my father-in-law are not sick. And uh, the my stepfather, the other person I've come in contact with, is also not sick. We're not showing any symptoms, so we don't qualify to be tested. So and I think that is a bit. It's 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 heart wrenching in the in the respect of we feel so guilty. Uh, look, we know we're not. There was hundreds of other people that came into the the country on the same day as we did. Um, the government, as you know, announced anybody who came in after the ninth had to present themselves for testing. We had to fill out tons of paperwork to say where we were living, our contact numbers, both from China and in South Africa. So if anybody on our flight was ill or has fallen ill, um, customs would have contacted us by now. Mm-hmm. So the assumption is no one on our flight was ill um, because of the stringent Health checks. I just think on the health side of it, it's irresponsible from the government not to want to test us. Mm. So if we are carriers um, and we are asymptomatic, we go out in public, there's a lot of people yeah. at risk. But like they said, it's it's almost impossible for all three of us to be carriers and my mother and father-in-law to not have been affected. Yes. Yeah, that's my question. Surely, and I remember last time we spoke, you said that you uh, you did get sick. Um, we did, uh, yes, in China. Yes, in in, in China, but but it, it surely once you've got sick, you don't carry the virus anymore, or do I, you? It's I 
I suppose, look, they, from what I've read up and I've done a lot of research is as soon as, uh, as soon as you have recovered, your body does produce obviously some sort of antibody. There have been a few cases of reinfection where they prob, where they have now thought that maybe they thought they had finished treating it, but they didn't. But that reinfection happened maybe a week or two weeks after. So it's impossible. We were sick in early January. So it's April now. So I, I doubt that we would have been walking around all this time in perfectly good health. Yes. And not have affected would, other people. It would be good to get a test and then you could possibly find out you're yes. able to, to go through it. Just, just, there's some very interesting research. We're going to pressure it. <laughs> okay. There's a very interesting research that's coming out now from the Institute, the New York Institute of Technology, which is a, a very highly reputable uh, university. Where they are showing, they've done, um, they've done analysis of countries where babies get a BCG vaccination. Uh, in other words, a TB vaccination yes. at birth. South Africa, thankfully, yes. has been getting this since the 1920s. The United States stopped it. Yes. They don't have it in the United oh, States wow. or Italy wow. or Spain. And now we know yeah. United States, Italy, and Spain it's are the highest. Are yes. the highest. Now I was just wondering about Johan. Was he born in this country? Would he have presumably yes. had this vaccination yes. as a baby? Uh, Gary's uh, grandmother and his mother are sisters. Uh, they all grew up in the same street. Everyone. It was like one of those big happy families. In they grew up in Sophia Town. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so they. Um, so everyone did, you know, he, you could see he has his same mark as all the South Africans yes. <laughs> of that era. Yes. We all have the mark on our arm. So, so yes, he did. So that doesn't, um, that, he, that doesn't really support that theory. Mm. No, not at all. No, but he was, look, as far as everyone knew, he was a very healthy man, apart from being a normal South African man and having a couple of drinks. He exercised regularly. He, uh, yes, he, he didn't, was, smoke, didn't smoke. Wasn't ill. Boxing, boxing. You know, he loved that type of stuff. He was stuff. the fighter out of all of us. Yes. And uh, it was. And today, he, um, two months ago, he turned fifty. Inside COVID nineteen from Biz News. In a rare televised speech, the British monarch Queen Elizabeth II has urged the UK and members of the Commonwealth, which includes South Africa, to remain united and resolute in the face of challenges resulting from COVID-19. It comes as the UK's confirmed coronavirus infections continue to rise, having now reached 48,500 with almost 5,000 deaths. Among the infected is the Queen's son, Prince Charles, and her Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who is being treated in hospital. I'm speaking to you at what I know is an increasingly challenging time, a time of disruption in the life of our country, a disruption that has brought grief to some, financial difficulties to many, and enormous changes to the daily lives of us all. I want to thank everyone on the NHS frontline as well as care workers and those carrying out essential roles who selflessly continue their day-to-day duties outside the home in support of us all. I'm sure the nation will join me in assuring you that what you do is appreciated and every hour of your hard work 
brings us closer to a return to more normal times. I also want to thank those of you who are staying at home, thereby helping to protect the vulnerable and sparing many families the pain already felt by those who have lost loved ones. Together we are tackling this disease, and I want to reassure you that if we remain united and resolute, then we will overcome it. I hope in the years to come, everyone will be able to take pride in how they responded to this challenge. And those who come after us will say the Britons of this generation were as strong as any, that the attributes of self-discipline, of quiet, good-humoured resolve, and of fellow feeling still characterise this country. The pride in who we are is not a part of our past. It defines our present and our future. The moments when the United Kingdom has come together to applaud its care and essential workers will be remembered as an expression of our national spirit. And its symbol will be the rainbows drawn by children. Across the Commonwealth and around the world, we have seen heartwarming stories of people coming together to help others, be it through delivering food parcels and medicines, checking on neighbours, or converting businesses to help the relief effort. And though self-isolating may at times be hard, many people of all faiths and of none are discovering that it presents an opportunity to slow down, pause and reflect in prayer or meditation. It reminds me of the very first broadcast I made in 1940, helped by my sister. We as children spoke from here at Windsor to children who had been evacuated from their homes and sent away for their own safety. Today, once again, many will feel a painful sense of separation from their loved ones. But now as then, we know deep down that it is the right thing to do. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. This time we join with all nations across the globe in a common endeavour, using the great advances of science and our instinctive compassion to heal. We will succeed, and that success will belong to every one of us. We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. But for now, I send my thanks and warmest good wishes to you all. This has been episode 13 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.